Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're spending a few weeks reading together uh, about the prophets Elijah and Elisha from the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, and we talked uh, about Elijah last week. We're going to do that again uh, this morning. So I'll read from First Kings 19 for us. Uh, we'll talk about the first two-thirds of the chapter, but I'm just going to read verses 9 through 18. It's printed there in your order of worship. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah, the son of Shepat of Abel, Meloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall, put Je, shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would use this story that we've read and heard together um, that can seem distant from us in so many ways in, in time and in experience. We ask that you would use it by your spirit to show us just how close, how near it is to us in experience. That you would use this story to show us uh, the great grace that you have given us in Jesus and that you change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, the other day uh, I was on a video call with a couple of people as, uh, you know, as one does these days. And one of the people on the call uh, had her son with her. Um, he's not quite two years old, so as you can imagine, he wasn't exactly thrilled to be having to hang out in one spot while his uh, mom was on the call. Uh, so at one point, the other folks on the call started to make faces, you know, started to say his name and stuff like that, just to catch his attention, just to distract him for a minute. And uh, none of that was really having any effect. So I uh, pulled out my secret weapon. 
This is a, a, an old trick that uh, I think my uncle taught me. Lots of uncles have taught lots of people this trick where you bend your fingers around and you pretend to take one of your, you know, fingers off like that. I know that you couldn't exactly see it from where you're seated, but I'm really, really good at it. And uh, kids generally lose their minds, you know, when they see it. It's good for about a minute of distraction. So I thought I'm going to do this. I called his name out. I made sure he was looking at me. <laughs> and I did that trick uh, a couple of times. And it was like absolutely nothing had happened. Uh, he was thoroughly and completely unimpressed. And he sat stone-faced for like a half second, and then he just went back to entertaining himself. And I thought, well, that did not work. And if you take that mildly crestfallen feeling, and you multiply it by about a thousand, then you begin to have a sense for the state of the mind and heart of Elijah in the story that we just read and heard together. Elijah has just done something absolutely incredible. And he has done this incredible thing for God. He's done it on behalf of God. And it has had absolutely no discernible effect. It has changed almost nothing. And so now Elijah is in despair, and God meets him hiding in a cave to show him what he's really like, and to show him what it means to be a part of his plan in this world. And I think we all uh, here this morning probably have something that we can learn uh, from this about, about ourselves, and about who God is. So uh, here's what's happened. Last week we talked about how Elijah went to Ahab. He was the king of Israel. And he told Ahab that there was going to be a drought. And uh, he did this because Ahab and his wife Jezebel um, had, had fostered and, and sanctioned the worship of Baal in Israel. Uh, it was a dark moment in the history of Israel. Baal, uh, of course, was known as the god of the storm. He was known as the rider of the clouds. And so worship of Baal was closely tied to rain cycles and to crop cycles. The idea was that he was the one who brought rain and fertility to the land. And so a drought is a direct assault on that. <laughs> a drought is, is an attack right at the heart of that false system of worship. A drought was a way to make the beauty and the good of the living God very, very clear over and against the shabbiness and trouble of the fake. And a drought is exactly what happened. And it went on for about three years, more than three years. And all of that time that the drought is happening, Elijah is hiding out with a widow uh, outside of the country of Israel. We talked about her a bunch last week. Meanwhile, Ahab the king has been looking everywhere for Elijah uh, in order to kill him. But then God comes to Elijah and says, I want you to go find Ahab. And fearlessly... Elijah does this. He leaves his hideout outside of the country. He finds Ahab and he tells Ahab to gather all of the prophets of Baal, all of the prophets of Asherah together at a place called Mount Carmel. And you should, uh, you should read later this afternoon uh, about exactly all that happened. It is an astounding story. It's in 1 Kings 18. But I'll give you the bottom line. Elijah 
gives all of the priests of Baal who are there that day a chance to prove that Baal is real. It's this incredibly elaborate setup with altars and with sacrifices and all kinds of other things. And these priests, they bend over backwards trying to get Baal to show up. And of course, it's, it's crickets, you know, it's nothing. And then God shows up in this overwhelming, powerful display, this incredibly moving display. There's all kinds of fear in it and all kinds of fire in it, and it is convincing. And the people who see it happen, they fall on their faces and they say, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And then all of these false prophets are rounded up and they're slaughtered and then the rain starts falling in sheets across the whole country and the drought ends. It is incredible. And Elijah is so jacked up when this happens. He's so elated. He's so overjoyed that he actually runs all the way to Jezreel, which is the summer palace of Ahab and his wife Jezebel. He runs all the way there to find out uh, what happens when Ahab tells Jezebel all that's taken place. And I do not doubt for a minute that Elijah thought when he got there, he would see something great happen. You know, I don't doubt that he thought maybe, you know, maybe Ahab and Jezebel will turn back to God. Or if they don't, maybe the people will rise up and there'll be an insurrection and they'll remove this horrible king, this blight on the nation, and they'll put in a good king who will turn the whole nation back to God. You know, these things that would make his work and his life as a prophet seem legitimate. You know, that's their whole job is to turn people back to God. But none of that happens. Instead, Jezebel doubles down. And she tells Elijah, you will be dead within a day. And so verse 3 of chapter 19 says, Elijah was afraid and he arose and he fled for his life. Well, that didn't work. I did everything you told me to do, God. I did everything you said to do. And now I'm running for my life. Nobody listened to me and nobody listened to you either, God. I was a complete failure. Your plan was a complete failure. And Elijah despairs. And church, it gets really dark. Verse 4 says, Elijah asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, God. Please take my life. And he falls asleep in depression and in despair under a broom tree. And here's what I want to say, church. (laughs) Elijah loved God and Elijah served God, but he only partially understood God. He loved God, he served God, but he didn't fully understand who God is. And we are in exactly the same place if we are Christians. Exactly the same place. And it is good for us to remember that sometimes. I mean, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't doubt um, that at some point in your life you have asked this question, why, God? This does not make any sense. Why has this happened 
why is this happening? You know, some situation, right, where you did what was right and you loved someone in the best way that you could possibly love someone and they still kicked you in the teeth. Why? Or some situation where it was really difficult to do so, it was really hard to do so, but you said no to that thing that you should have said no to and you still feel alone and forgotten and ignored. Or a situation where it was really difficult, but you said yes to this really difficult thing because you knew that that was the right thing to do, and you did it, and it was hard, and no one even noticed. Or if they did, they just think you're nuts. You know, you're just living as faithfully as you can, and the pieces of life are not coming together like you hoped they would. You are not alone if you have ever felt like that. Elijah sure did. It's part of our experience. It's part of our common life together as a family. It's what it means some of the time to be a Christian. And for sure, some of that is because this world is a fallen place. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. You know, the theologian Peter Lightheart says, we don't need Nietzsche to tell us that we're dominated by lies and violence. We don't need Foucault to tell us that the world languishes under the dominion of dark powers and authorities. And he's right, you know, it's our lived experience. We just have to look around and see that that's true. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying in the New Testament lesson that we heard when he said the weapons that we fight with aren't weapons of the flesh, But another reason that we feel like Elijah did sometimes is because we do not have the whole picture of what God is up to in this world and what God is up to with us. We don't have that full picture at any given moment. We cannot see it all at once. And so it's confusing. I mean, I'm partial to thinking like Elijah did. I mean, God, if this incredible, amazing outpouring of your power doesn't work, what in the world will? You can understand his frustration. And you can understand his despair. And the really, really, really good news, church, is that God comes to people like him and he comes to people like us in our frustration and in our despair. And he comes with grace. Elijah has, has wandered his way and, and run his way to Mount Horeb all the way as far south away from Jezebel and Ahab as you could possibly get. Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, significant place in the history of God's people. And he is just hanging out and hiding out in a cave. And that's when God comes to him with a question in verse 9. And I love to point out always that when God asks questions, <laughs> it's not because he needs to know the answer to them. You know, it's not like, how did you get here, Elijah? You look bad. What's happened? He asks those questions so that we will think and so that we will process and so that we will consider. He knows the answer. And this is his question to Elijah. What are you doing here? 
what are you doing here? It's so probing and it's so beautiful. And it works, you know. Elijah pours out his whole, he just pours it all out. Everything just comes out, you know. I've been jealous for you, God. I did everything you told me to do. And it didn't work. And your people, have you seen your people? They have torn down your altars and they've forsaken your covenant. And they've killed all of the prophets with the sword. And now I'm the only one left. It's just me. And they're coming after me now, God. That's all that he can see. That's the smallness of his world. That's, that's all he can feel. It's as small and it's as limited as that little cave that he's living in. And so God sends him outside. And in verses uh, 11 and 12, this scary, beautiful, mysterious thing happens. God sends a full repertoire of impressive, terrifying, overwhelming manifestations of power to pass in front of Elijah. A great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks, but Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but God was not in the fire. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? The, the fear, the wonder that would have filled Elijah seeing these things and just being, you know, the object of them. I mean, I'm sure he was on his knees. I, I would have, you know, I would have been on my face. But God is not in any of them. And then finally... There's just a sound, and it's so quiet that it's almost imperceptible. A low whisper, a thin silence, a murmur, just a low murmur. We aren't told that God is in that murmur but we don't need to be told. Because when Elijah heard it, he covered his face. He took his cloak and he covered his face because instinctively he knew God is in this and I shouldn't see God. It's a holy, holy moment like when, when God passes by Moses on that very same mountain and has to cover up Moses' face so that he is not overcome. In contrast to the big, overwhelming, loud, flashy signs, God is finally known to Elijah, and God is finally present to him in his low, quiet murmur of a word. I don't know for sure, but I think this might have had something to do with all of the weight that Elijah had been putting on all the big and flashy stuff that he was a part of with the prophets of Baal. All kinds of fire in that, all kinds of fear in that, very impressive. And Elijah was absolutely sure that it would do the trick and that the people would turn back to God right then and there. It's like uh, we heard in the gospel lesson when the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, show us a sign. Give us something to look at. They want something big and flashy from Jesus. But Jesus tells them that the only sign they're going to get is going to be so quiet that they won't even hear it. The sign of Jonah, the son of man, three days and nights in the heart of the earth, the lowest whisper 
of all. <laughs> but church, it is the death of Jesus <laughs> that changes absolutely everything for us and changes absolutely everything for the world. It is the death of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension that breaks the power of lies and violence. It is his death and resurrection and ascension that does away with the dark powers and principalities. It's his death and resurrection and ascension that is the great grace that it offers to us the forgiveness of sins and it offers to us healing and it offers to us a vocation in this world to love and serve our neighbors like Jesus loved and served. God does not do things like we expect him to do them. He does not do things like we would do them. And that's just a fact. And I hope that people like us can hear that and think that is really, really good news. Because the cross of Jesus is a scandal. It makes no sense. But it is our redemption and our healing. It is everything. And whatever we're experiencing in the present moment, you know, as difficult as it might be, or as confusing as whatever that is for you might be, it is not the whole story, and it is for sure not the end of the story. And that's just a fact. And if Elijah needed a low, quiet splinter of a word to remind him of that good news, that the story isn't over, then maybe we need it too. That's what I think that quiet voice was about. It was about God saying, Elijah, hush for a second. And listen. And pay attention. My love for you, my work to redeem the world, it is a long game, Elijah. And it didn't come off the rails after Mount Carmel when things didn't go the way that you thought that they should. And so he asked him again, what are you doing here? <laughs> and Elijah repeats it again, but this time he can listen to what God says to him. That's what he does in verses 15 through 18. He says, Elijah, listen to me. You're going to anoint two kings, and those two kings are going to lead to the downfall of Ahab and that whole horrible regime in Israel. And, and that's going to happen. This story is ongoing. It's not off the rails. And just as importantly, Elijah, I know you think that you're alone, but you're definitely not alone. I've got 7,000 people who've never bowed to Baal. I've got a prophet who's going to help you in your work, who's going to take your place when you're gone. You're not alone. This story is not off the rails, Elijah. It's a long game. And it leads to your good. <laughs> and eventually, it leads to the good for the whole world. That's the word of grace that God uh, speaks to despondent Elijah sulking in a cave. And it is the word of grace that comes to people like you and me too in whatever places we find ourselves. God's love for those who follow him in repentance and faith, it is certain. It is certain. And we can take that to the bank. And if we're ever tempted to think maybe that isn't true, we just look again at the cross and we know it is true. It's certain. 
his work in redeeming us, his work in redeeming the world, it is a long game and we don't see all of it right now. We do not see all of it right now. It might look off the rails here or there for a moment, but it is definitely not off the rails. He will redeem us. He will sustain us. He will make everything new again. And we know that's true because he told us it's true. And so let's listen to him, even if we have to strain to hear the low whisper. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would come to us and use whatever it is you need um, to make us stop for a moment and listen. If you have to ask us, what are you doing here? Then ask us. <laughs> or any of a million other questions that would make us stop and listen to you. Please ask those questions of us so that we can hear you, so that we can hear the good news again, so that we can know we're part of this big, beautiful story. We can't see all of it yet, and that's okay, and it will end with good. <laughs> Father, help us to believe that. Do whatever it is that you need to do to, to help us to listen and to believe so that we will grow up in our faith and so that we can be a people through whom you love uh, this broken world. And when we hear that term broken world, we think in particular this morning about Haiti, about a country thrown into political chaos and instability just a month ago and now facing physical instability and trauma because of this earthquake. Father, we pray that you would flood that place with healing and with rescue. We ask that you'd use the folks that we partner with there, ESMI and the orphanage is there, that you would use them um, to be a sign of your love and a sign of your help and your hope. Pray that you would come alongside those who are suffering. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.